0: corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Gaia.
1: I'm excited for this conversation. I think this will be a lot of good back and forth between Two of us here just being in the industry as veterans in our own rights here. This will be available as a podcast on all your favorite platforms under that Lead Lag Live banner. And with all that said, my name is Michael Gaia, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour is Tom Earden. Tom, I, I like your cover photo on Twitter. I feel like that's your that's for sort of the FinTwit greats. But for those <laughs> who are not familiar with your background, introduce yourself. Who are you? How did you get involved in markets? What have you done in your career? And what are you doing today?
2: Sure. I am the senior trader at Skylands Capital. And before we start, I just have a couple disclaimers. Obviously, I speak only on behalf of myself and not Skylands Capital. Nothing should be construed as financial advice. And I can't recommend, uh, long or short, any individual names for compliance reasons. All that being said, I've been in this game since 1986 when I went down to the floor of the, what was then the New York Futures Exchange for my first day counting deltas for O'Connor and Associates. Ever since, I've been you know, in an institutional trader up on buy-side desks and running some sell-side desks as well. And I also ran a direct access business for about five years from the Florida Exchange, New York Stock Exchange, for a while. So I've, I've sort of been on all touches of the institutional equity and derivatives trading markets for almost you know, 35 years, I guess. It's been at least that now. So okay, explain, explain for the audience what
1: exactly an institutional trader is. I think most people, when they hear trader, they think, you know, what you see on Fintwit.
2: Sure. So, I mean, it's really a, there's two sides of the trade, right? There's a sell side and a buy side. I spent most of my career in the latter as a buy side trader. And so you work on behalf of either a large mutual fund complex, an investment manager, a hedge fund, and you are tasked with buying and selling relatively large amounts of stock in the marketplace. So you're you're you know, you're pretty versed in handling seven figures of any name in and out of markets and 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 the same with the sell side. You're really helping facilitate that trade. You may be using capital, you may be helping find access to different these days pools of dark pools or different uh, algo twitches, but you know, it's really the same game on both sides of the coin.
1: So the the main idea there is that obviously you're focusing much more on kind of the execution side of things, which presumably means that you're not necessarily paying too much attention to macro, but macro and news can impact bid-ask spreads and things like that. So talk about for the audience, what kind of considerations go into what makes for sort of a, a good execution on a trade?
2: Well, I mean, these days, everything is completely measured and analyzed. That industry has really grown in the last 20 years where not only can we tell ahead of time what the expected cost of trading should be, but then it gets measured all the way along the way, a line and a number of factors. And so you can really be informed on what good trading and bad trading looks like because we do such a good job measuring it. And that includes the risk factors, what kind of volatilities in the market, what kind of volatility is in stock, what kind of percentage of the volume are you being asked to be. And you know, for anybody that hasn't done it when you're in a market and you're asked to be 25 or 30 percent of volume in something that's in motion and that that's a that can be a wild ride you're always informed by a market view when you walk in each day right and any trader who says otherwise would you know wouldn't be very good because th- this is all about applying levers at certain times and certain moments within the day or within the week or within the month as to you know, when to be more aggressive in trading and, and when to sit back and when do you think the market will come your way versus go away from you. And I think one of the hardest things to do is to learn to be aggressive really at the beginning of orders and not you know, get caught watching. That's probably the biggest mistake I've seen kids who come into the business over the years is take a view at the beginning and get behind on a large execution because then you're playing catch up and it, it's really difficult.
1: And people do try to gauge it, right? I mean, we algos, I should say, try to gauge
2: it at that right. point. Right. It, you, you definitely have to manage how your footprint, and if, if you've been doing it for a while, you get a sense really in a hurry if somewhere, somehow in the market, you're being sniffed. I and mean, you know, there's a lot of different ways that can happen. There are not all pure actors inside of every algo wheel, and you really have to have a radar and sort of walk away or, or pr- pursue a different strategy when you smell that kind of recognition of your order and and especially if you're at the larger institutions you know the biggest places have really a big problem because it's hard these days liquidity is not as good or as deep as it was a while back and you know these larger orders are difficult in that environment
1: why is it why do you say that why is it just because there's there's fewer market makers fewer players
2: in in the field yeah i think there's definitely liquidity has gone down. If we kind of look at the measures of, like, say, the most basic type measures, depth of the S and P order book and breadth, you know, that stuff has kind of gotten skinnier as the last couple of years have unfolded. And you know, and naturally, um, it's kind of Wall Street's response to higher volatility overall. And you know, uh, they've also experienced the wrong side of lower liquidity, so they're less willing to be, I guess, stepping in with larger amounts of capital at present i don't really use much capital as once was the norm and you know the business all kind of it all kind of hinged way back into the 90s when fidelity started to compensate their buy side desk based on sort of how they did against the, the volume weighted average price or as traders refer to as the VWAP and so basically the sell side was forced to print the Fidelity Contra at the VWAP or better every single day to make them look good in the market and therefore, you know, earn their review and their performance bonus and all that stuff. So that kind of changed the landscape for good in terms of how do you measure the buy side and how are they doing and what the street was willing to do then when Fidelity was the 900-pound gorilla in the room, and there wasn't as much competition among large hedge funds and strat funds and all this other business that has flown into the into the arena since, has really kind of diluted what, how uh, probably those largest institutions, what are called the vanilla long-only type institutions, are treated today versus how they were then.
1: And part of that also, obviously, is sort of the relates to the growth of algorithmic Trading and sort of yes. rules based ways of thinking yes. about things. Yeah. L- let's talk about sort of the evolution of algorithmic trading from an institutional standpoint and sure. how market dynamics have changed, maybe since you know the mid eighties.
2: Sure. So I, you know, I'm old enough. I'm sorry to say this to be around when the first buy side tool was ever invented, and that was back in the day. Internet had a huge market share, and they invented a key called the I only key, where the buy side trader could. Enter a market into the marketplace and, in, in essence, become his or her own own broker. And ever since then, I've said, you know, who's my favorite broker? Why, that's me. So the ability for the buy side to actually become their own agent and take control of orders and, and really operate that order entirely without sort of sell side input only began to happen in the late 90s, it gathered steam into the 2000s, and now it's really how most of the business is conducted. And so as a part of that, the buy side has gotten a lot more facile at analyzing which tools, which tools work, which tools leave footprints, which tools expose orders where they shouldn't be. And so that whole dynamic and ability to measure and ability to quantify the tool and choose the tool correctly has exponentially grown.
1: And is it fair to say that the, the sort of criticisms by, you know, so let's call the retail audience against yeah. institutions, right? That, that it really is an uneven playing field or is this more kind of, you know, machines fighting machines? So to speak?
2: Well, it's definitely not an even playing field per se, although I don't, I'm not of the view that, like, if you really dug into retail executions, they're better than they've ever been, right? You're getting filled in, at or inside the best bidder offer on every single in, in execution. There's a lot more choices to find that liquidity inside what is now a penny wide spread. So decimalization has definitely, in my opinion, been a great benefit to retail over the as time has progressed. And do retail orders get sold as payment for order flow? Yeah, that's part of the business right now. But overall quality of executions I think are as good of, as they've ever been for retail. All
1: right. So you said you're never necessarily gonna walk into a trade without having some right. kind of view in the background, right? So let's talk right. about you know a year in view on markets. We only got a couple of weeks left. I'm right. um, the said that you never know. There could still be fireworks like twenty eighteen. Right. But talk about sort of how you view the year from a from a kind of somebody who's doing the trading side on the institutional side.
2: So, you know, for instance, today we walk in and it's Monday morning and what looks different? Well, not a lot, because you walk in and the S&P futures are up 8 or 10 or something. Not much going on. Crypto, all that kind of stuff is pretty flat. Not a lot of stocks in motion. A couple of buyouts, but you know, buyouts at lower levels from, for stocks that were higher a year and a half ago. But the one thing that jumped out is all of a sudden you have a VIX printing 7 or 8% higher with that backdrop, right? So the market's getting a little nervous ahead of the CPI print and the Fed this week. Again, I guess that's natural. If we look at the course of this year, the thing that really stands out for me, there's really kind of three defining characteristics. One has been to fade this giant downtrend line in the S&P 500 every time we kind of touch that line. Lately, that's coincided with the S&P 200-day 200, uh, 200 moving average as well. And sort of the third leg of the stool when that's been happening is that you get a VIX sub-20 print going on. And all that kind of made the end of these short-term bull runs come into focus pretty quickly. So now we're kind of more neutral going into these prints. The sentiment's kind of drawn back a little bit over the last few weeks. I don't know if you listeners are fans of my friend Helene Meiser and her weekly Saturday morning chart fest. I think you should, if you don't follow Helene, definitely do. And so she does a weekly poll, and it's, it's a pretty significant sample. It's, you know, usually 2,500 to 4,000 voters. Three weeks in a row coming into this week, we had 50-50 prints. That's never happened before. The the question of the poll is, will the next 100 points in the S&P 500 be up or down? And for three weeks in a row, we locked in at 50-50. Well, you know, we had kind of a sloppy week last week, and this week for the first time really since mid-September, we had 43 percent say that would be up and 57% say down. So we kind of dial back sentiment a little bit coming into these events of the week. I think people are a little nervous and a little on edge. You know, what are the catalysts can send us higher? Well, obviously, a really benign CPI print is going to be viewed pretty favorably. And there's probably enough fuel to get a nice run going off of that. And then the whole thing after that will be everyone parsing both what the Fed does, but more more importantly, what what Powell says and looking for those, you know, any kind of hint or drop of pivot type language in you know, either his prepared statement or his, or his answers to the questions afterwards. So uh, that's our setup coming in. It's probably neutral to favorable, I would say. That being said, we're in a year with a lot of tax loss selling that's going to stay on top of us throughout the end of the year, I think. That's going to still be a tough thing to chop through to get the market meaningfully higher before year end, in, in my view. You know, there's been a lot of chatter this year about Santa Claus rally stuff. Being a stickler, first of all, I'd like to just reiterate the Santa Claus rally is technically only the week between Christmas and New Year's, and it's now kind of been conflated into the entire month of December. That very end, we might get a little optimistic push and dial back a little bit. You know, for all the hemming and gnashing of teeth, it's not been a terrible year. The Dow is down whatever six or seven percent. The S and P's down seventeen or maybe sixteen and a half right here. All things considered, not a bad or awful year. We were just kind of due.
1: Yeah, I, I, I would only really put the caveat at least not yet. But again, I go back to you never know yeah. how this stuff plays out, right? So yeah. oh, I want to go back to what you that observation. I noticed that this morning as well. I mean, and I'm looking at it right now. I mean, the VIX is actually up quite a bit while yeah. you know, it looks like things are okay while treasury yields are dropping while defensive sectors like utilities right. are strong when things like that happen when you get these kind of like odd uh, different tells within the day right. you get a super clients calling you up saying you know what do you think is anybody actually taking any
2: actions based on that in my particular shop here because we actually have one of the longest Track records and stable as client bases. We don't have those clients. We don't have to do a whole lot of that. Most of the folks that we manage for have been with us for a very long time and have been through at least one, if not two, market cycles. So we don't necessarily see a lot of that. I mean, obviously you get nervous clients. What I've learned to pay attention to is there's a, is who are the two or three nervous clients and when do they when do they make the phone ring? Because they're usually a good tell. And I haven't seen I that. Like, I, feel like, I feel like it's moved
1: into a way. And I've seen that myself, too. It's like there's always when – you, when you manage for a book of business for other right. for individuals, yeah. there's always, to your point, somebody who's like the, the contrarian signal.
2: Right. And I, I think the thing that's really stood out, too, in the last 18 months is that we had a really long run where people didn't – Realize the hardest thing and the most important thing, if you will, in this business is to preserve capital on a down cycle because you won't get through as a manager of other people's assets to the next cycle if you can't do that without, you know, some modicum of responsibility and success. You just you'll just get eaten by that cycle. And so and we've seen it like all the folks that really got over their knees are, you know, they're either gone or going to go or, you know, it's just beginning. Get some
1: of the audience
2: good. Right. One of these two things always I, I'm vaguely alert when two things don't match, something's gotta give. So which is right and which is wrong. I I can't tell you that today because we got these two massive variables, but yeah, it, it, it was notable and you know it's telling you the market's a little bit nervous. And I don't mind the market getting a little bit nervous in front of these events.
1: I w I wanna play a little bit more on the tax loss selling decision yeah. for a bit here because you know, what's, what's unusual is is that there could be a lot of tax loss selling beyond even just stocks, right? Obviously. And I'm talking about bonds and that. So so, so let's talk about mechanics for a moment of what, why is that, is it that tax loss selling uh, is important as maybe a tell on future direction?
2: I mean, the, the good money managers pay extremely close attention to that part of the portfolio management function. And, you know, for better or for worse I'm happy to work for a man who's really really good at managing the taxable portion for for our taxable clients and that every possible year we do everything we can to give that client the lowest possible tax bill and that means really staying on top of those lots all year long and managing them really actively you know today the largest order i'm I'm involved with is involved with a situation that that would apply here so it's just part of really being a responsible caretaker of clients capital is that this is a way to lower the tax bone ultimately deliver the larger total return to your client it's that simple. but,
1: but, but you don't really see that with individual bonds right i got to assume because yeah um,
2: yeah i you know i haven't seen or been as familiar with people managing the bond, you know, it's been such an easy <laughs> ride for bonds for so long that this is the, that first year really where you're posting these big negative numbers, and that could be an active part of people doing some tax loss selling. You raised a good point, and I hadn't really even thought about that aspect until you raised it.
1: Yeah, I don't know, it's just because it's, it's like if if there were ever a year to consider doing tax loss <laughs> harvesting in the bond right. market, this would be, yeah, this would be it.
2: Yeah. I mean, that being said, you know, I, I'm of the view that we probably saw the peak in the two year for this year. And next year will be, I think, more interesting in sort of high yield and traditional corporate bonds to see what really happens with the dichotomy between when a Fed pivots and then how well can these companies hold up if the consumer gets a little worse last year or we do get a little recession time it'll be very interesting to happen see what happens in high yield
1: yeah and i feel like that that relates to a a discussion around sort of sentiment around default risk right Right. so right because you haven't really had credit spreads widen in any real meaningful way and credit spreads widen when there's a feeling of default risk increasing and that's what you see in high volatile highly volatile periods and and recessions So, if you think the two year has peaked, presumably there would be the Fed overreacted, which probably means default risk premium should start blowing out.
2: Yeah, I I would expect that to get a little bit bigger throughout the year as the year goes on. I think the challenge next year is who can grow earnings and how can they grow them. You know, this year was about the kinds of companies that were helped by the the backdrop right and who had pricing to pass along to a customer or consumer so that either the supply chain or inflation chain issues
1: so okay, we're talking about sort of the, the idea of a degree of normalization with market behavior right so right. next year is going to be interesting you mentioned earnings Let, let's talk about the earnings side for a bit here right are, are there are there particular sectors or industries that you think are going to be more resilient into next year that maybe people are underestimating how the strength could play out
2: do you think again next year your ability? It's all going to be about margin preservation. So a little bit of pricing. I think we all expect that inflation won't be as bad next year. You know, stability of book of business is really important. There should be maybe some basis points to being back now that all this supply stuff chain has has kind of washed back to where it was. I still think you want. To stay pretty conservative overall, i don't think it's a year to get back into the highest beta highest flyer stuff now that might we might get that like second half and or fourth quarter when when we it really feels like the Fed is about to turn or has turned because people are going to come flying back into that kind of stuff at that point, but until then, I think it's still to stay with basic companies trading at reasonable multiples and not get into high multiple, high beta world quite yet. We'll be back after a quick break.
1: Hello, listeners. Michael Gaia here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit the Lead Lag slash Lead Lag Live and get an exclusive thirty percent off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now back to our discussion. Yeah, and things where this is going to be challenging, right? Because usually when you're in a recession or a right. slowdown, you want right. you want to be in utility, stables, healthcare, right? But right. Those are also have been have been overbid. I mean, fundamentally, they're not really yeah. attractive either.
2: You know, I mean, historically, I think there's a good chance of the next six months are a good small cap time again. Like, into a small recession or into and out of, that's been the place where small cap has done well historically and – Small caps really struggled again for the most of the best part of the last decade against either you know the Nasdaq or the S and P type names, and I still, even though there's been relative outperformance this year, I think there could be more of that to come, at least in the first half of next year. Yeah, I think that we could see still more carnage across those kinds of names. You know, I, I think one of the worst developments has sort of been this like two definitions of of earnings that have emerged like sort of this adjusted EBITDA world that a lot of names and some well-known names live in that, you know, it's all fantasy. I actually spent some time recently with Jim Chanos and you guys all know him, right? Probably the greatest short seller in the last 30 years. You know, and if you just listen to Jim go through business after business where that kind of stuff is get, they've gotten away with it. They're not going to, you can't call stock compensation <laughs> A lot of these are companies that have basically been stock compensation schemes on, under the guise of "we're running this business." That's going to go away, I think. I, I still think the reckoning is that we're not done there at all.
1: Part of the reckoning, I think, is you can maybe argue is is continuation of what's gone on in the crypto space. I mean, I've right. jokingly said, you know, I right. don't think I don't think the bear market ends until SPF is in jail, or right. people say, "Well, I guess the bear market's never going to end."
2: Right? But, no, but... I mean, so I, well, I was thinking about what we were going to talk about today, and I, and I don't particularly just live in that world, but I I closely observe the world because it tells a lot about investor risk appetite, investor behavior. And so when we were talking about what shoes are to drop, well, you know, one of the things that I've been of the opinion is like, again, I don't want to call out companies because I I haven't done the work on Binance, but the place smells to me, right? It smells bad. Sure enough, we come in today, and the, the Justice Department is mulling over a whole series of, of charges. So now I would be really wary of having my clients' assets on anyone's platforms right now. I just don't trust it. I think the foot-dragging behind SBF is sort of there's a problem here in that both civil and criminal want to go, and now they have to coordinate and figure out who's going to do what and charge what, and that takes time you know it's two two bureaucracies trying to figure out and match up what they do cuz i think they're going to want to go at the same time i have no idea what he's doing in terms of this performance he's been putting on i don't i can't imagine an, any attorney i mean advising such a thing it kind of reminds me if you're old enough and been in the business or been around there was a guy named vinny the chin who was a mobster in new york that got in trouble so vinny started shuffling around greenwich village in his bathrobe muttering trying to like put off <laughs> that he was losing his marbles i don't know if this is a version of Vinny in his robe or, or, or what could possibly going on i think the other the only other thing is that this guy's a psychopath because there is no way you could be that bad at trading that bad at risk management and that bad at organizational guidelines and rules and and anything to build an infrastructure of a firm that size and just be like, well, I kind of just didn't know that this pile was in the wrong pile. All that stuff does not hold up at all. And I really do think that he will be charged and that he'll, you know, he'll be going down for it. Now, the other part of that business that really concerns me is the whole stable coin business. I don't have any special insight into it other than to say, you know, for, again, for those who are around during the Madoff years, the one thing that, sort of never made sense like where are the trades where did Madoff do all these option trades no one I knew was his contract no one i knew was a broker he had to have this footprint of thousands of contracts a day and yet no one ever saw the trades well i kind of feel like i'm seeing the same thing repeat and say tether where theoretically there are billions of dollars of commercial paper somewhere well maybe now that's all in treasures but how come no one i know has ever traded with that firm and does all these large billions and billions of dollars worth of trades. Where are the trades? Who are the contras? Who are the brokers? I don't know the answer to those. But, you know, until I did know that, and until the other part of that is, until I saw, a audited by a big, you know, big eight type firm, and not that they haven't gotten things wrong over the years either. But until those guys stop with these sort of minor attestations or anything along those lines. You know, if I was Tether, I would say, I want to interview the top three big eight accounting firms with the the roughest forensics accounting department that we can find. And I want them to do our audit and to present the results. And you just don't see those guys doing that or any of these other sort of stable coin types. It's all attestations and all, all this kind of stuff that's just not going to hold up. And we see what happens when you don't have that as FTX just completely unwound and no one ever did the full due diligence behind it.
1: But so, by the way, I'm glad you brought that point about you you don't know anybody that that sort of you know can see the trail or, or is part of the trail. It's like this is a right. relatively small community when it comes to the execution side.
2: Right. Yeah. So you know, and I've I've actually publicly tweeted that like, hey, anybody hit me that's ever seen them, seen them trade, or know someone that's traded for with them, buy them, anything crickets. I just don't have high level of confidence that i would want my name on my client's assets in any of those things and especially for you know marginal differences in yield and if it's not a marginal difference in yield then that to me is another big red flag because there's no free launches in the business they might tell you there are but they are not and if something doesn't look right it isn't right that's one of my biggest takeaways of 35 years in this
1: yeah i have to, i never understood the um the the, like, the yield that people were saying right. but like, like last year it made no sense to me it's like all right, well, how are you how are you generating that? Yeah. Like, oh, right. do this uh, rudimentary analysis told you this is bullshit
2: yeah exactly that it, well said rudimentary analysis told you it was bullshit so stay away from it it's dangerous and it's the risk reward profile on that stuff to me is like crazy bad just crazy bad
1: for the remaining minutes here, again, if anybody wants to come up and right. engage, ask questions, click on that bottom left mic request button. Again, this will be available as a podcast under that Lead Lag like Live banner. Make sure you follow Tom here on Twitter uh, and check out his thoughts. I know you wanted to talk about Musk and Twitter and Musk family. <laughs> and I, I, think that, so I, I saw I saw the Carlos Goen documentary on Netflix. And it was, I didn't know the story of Carl's going at all, but you know, it was fascinating the way he kind of split his time across two continents, two different car companies, and you know, then people were gunning from him for him. I want to hear your thoughts on, on Musk, Twitter, and. Tesla, because obviously Tesla stock is acting pretty negatively right. the last several right. months
2: here. Right. Well, so I think there's a lot of parts to this story. I mean, obviously the first thing I got up pretty early this morning. I was, I was out for a couple of days at the end of the week. I wanted to get some caught up, and the first thing that showed up in my feed was Musk at a Chappelle show, and now it's now it's kind of gone wild since then. But you know, getting booed in San Francisco at a Chappelle show. Like, that is the ultimate the emperor has no clothes moment. Like, that should be his people, his kind of audience, sort of this belief set that he's starting to be pretty vocal about. And yet he was booed relentlessly last night. So that's just such a tell. And, you know, the stock has already been booed. You know, we're all paying attention. We see where it is. And, and I can't really comment a lot about the stock itself but I think it just raises all the concerns that are amplified in the marketplace today. One is what is this man's attention and where is it going? Look, he's he's obviously got incredible intelligence and ability to do a lot of things, but at some point you run out of you just run out of bandwidth no matter who you are and if you're running five companies none of them end up being run well at that point is my would be my view if you look at the last couple of roadshow type events they're just not working for him like they used to like like the semi launch was a dud the neuralink whatever demo whatever that was was a dud and you know not only that but you know people are starting to dig in harder each time to these kind of dog and pony shows and say well you know actually yeah, if you watch a YouTube about the, what the semi really can and can't do, it's pretty interesting. You have all kinds of whistleblowers coming out of Neuralink about what's being done behind the scenes, and you know, at the mean when so when he's standing up on stage now and says, "Well, but you know, I'm going to put a chip in your brain in six months and that'll cure blindness." I don't think there's a lot of buyers anymore for that stuff, and not only that. So he's kind of he's in a big regulatory box, and you know, Fort Elon has got people attacking uh, regulatory people on all sides on the twitter side he's gone there's no doubt that the ftc is watching him dismantle all parts of the agreement that they just made you know six months ago with twitter about how to manage health and as wellness and safety stuff behind the scenes so he's already in probably in violation of those consent degrees we we none of us know what Gary Gensler or his predecessor has been thinking at the SEC, but he's openly in defiance of his his Twitter 420 settlement on a daily basis and is under oath saying I'm not following any of that stuff. And then on the car side, you know, obviously well-documented issues with FSD, phantom braking, crashes, fires, all that stuff, and a number of regulatory agencies there that for whatever reason. Haven't hit him hard yet, so I, I expect shoes to drop on him on one, if not several, of those areas in the coming six months or a year. I can't explain what the SEC has been doing or why. Some think it's because Gensler wanted Yellen's job. Well, that's not happening now, and, and I think maybe finally that stuff's coming fruition, and or you know whatever he was thinking behind the the pool, poll last year. Should I sell stock? and his brother selling stock right before that you know i think that's been documented that that's also under investigation so he's got a lot of possible places where he gets in trouble on the regulatory side the market acts like he's off eye off the ball on tesla and i don't know how he can can have a liable he spent the last month in oakland you know tweeting and cutting people at twitter so the market's not getting fooled as much as it once was is my view
1: yes i feel like if trump never were on twitter then whatever musk would tweet out now would probably impact markets i mean it's kind of like in the beginning of the administration right right? whenever we tweet something markets will run up or go down hard and now people are just numb to it so with a big platform like twitter you know musk says something that's outlandish or not politically correct or something that might have foreign politicians and nobody seems to care now
2: he says a lot of i mean i guess if you know, he's a unique individual, and he always has been. And But if we kind of step back and said, okay, name another corporate executive in the whole world who comes close to doing this stuff on a daily basis, you can't, right? And so now it's starting to impact the stock, clearly. It's impacting sort of his Tesla fanboy community. Some of those guys are getting pretty restless, it's clear right now, um, looking for buybacks or whatever stuff that they're kind of starting to clamor for. And it's, you know, it kind of all flows back to the sort of governance side of Tesla where what board can you think of that would let a CEO kind of go free at this level and spend their time and talents and words in a way that he is without checking the CEO? I can't think of one. So it's kind of also goes to like, this governance issue where you have a board that's basically perceived as non-existent or weak or well-paid to be quiet, whatever your view is of their board, they're clearly not representing who they should be, which is the shareholder and talking to a CEO about behavior that no other CEO in the world would even
3: attempt. We'll be back after a quick break.
1: But to your point, you still have the fanboys, you know, hardcore fans, right? No matter what, they're going to support right. everything he does. Right. Listen, I mean, you always have that person that everybody kind of gravitates towards. I mean, I've right. always had the uh, mindset that, you know, the media in particular needed uh, somebody to kind of replace right. the aura of Steve Jobs, right? When right. Steve Jobs passed. And I think Musk was, you can argue, to an extent, a part of that. I guess the question is, you know, can can regulators uh, – they've obviously got, got them in their sights. I mean – the regulators well, are not even able to respond properly or quick enough by any means when it comes to SBF. How are they going to do it with Musk?
2: Well, first of all, they've been sniffing around him for a lot longer. So th- that stuff's much deeper etched into um, investigations and, and whatever across the board. His, I think his biggest risk is that he gets slapped with you know, director and officer ban. I think that's the most immediate and biggest risk because that would be the next logical step on the SEC side of things. If if they do in fact act, you know the other thing is so you. I saw in the last twenty four hours a couple different people just leave Twitter. That they you know it's gotten to the point where you're starting to drive away, and it's not all like bleeding heart liberal types. It's just content creators that don't want to see the platform evolve into what it hasn't been. You know, I understand completely two political viewpoints, but if it becomes just a place where it's perceived as hateful and vile and amplifying those kind of voices consistently, I'm seeing people that are content producers leave. And if enough of those leave, the platform's worthless. It becomes another truth social or another getter or another whatever these other platforms are. On that side, and the other side is like, how many tweets have you read in the last three weeks or month that? i'm not going to buy that car anymore, just because of what i'm watching, so he he really is in you know, out of danger, aliening a big part of his his traditional customer i don 't know how I would advise him i don't know who's around him to advise him and help him, sort of like he claims he comes from the middle, he's kind of showing himself to not be exactly in the middle. I recently spent about ninety minutes talking to someone who's a reporter on him and Tesla and has covered the space for a long time, and has well-developed contacts within the business, really knows, knew a lot more about him and and what's going on behind the scenes than I did, and it was clear to me after that conversation that, you know, some people are very worried about him, that they just, there's just no one kind of there that can truly check him right now, and put him back sort of in the middle somewhere.
1: Yeah, and, and, you know, this is the thing, it's like when you're somebody who's in a position of power and he's done this before, right? He's removed tweets that he he put out that were, like, on the right. edge of a little bit more extreme. Right. You you, gotta, you have to hope that nothing bad comes from that, but it's like, you know, there are a lot of impressionable people, not, not just on Twitter, but in life, right? So they might misconstrue something, and that becomes sort of, you know, the lightning rod for, oh, it's because you said this, this right. person took the action, whether it's fair right. or not fair.
2: Yeah, and I don't know what's going on. Like, sort of this God complex thing is sort of really evolving, especially on Twitter, right? So here's some, like, one of his leading... Tesla fan guys tweeted at him yesterday. I think Elon is getting too political and it's a mistake. Elon's response, this must be done for the future of civilization. (laughs) Today, woke virus is a mortal threat to civilization. The woke mind virus is either defeated or nothing else matters. I mean, this is, uh, you you can agree or disagree with those statements, but if this is his focus now in life, you know, it's a far way from getting to Mars or building the next great tunnel or car or semi or anything else. If this is what he's, you know, this is his number one thing in life now. Okay, the market's starting to say, "All right," then you're not paying attention to these other things.
1: Yeah, no, I, I think that's a that's a valid way of, of of thinking about it. All right, I want to go back a little bit again to the institutional side of things. Again, anybody here wants to ask any questions, we're yeah. welcome to click on that microquest button. One of the things that's always kind of in the back of most people's minds is derivatives, right? The kind of weapons of right. mass destruction that it's going to be. Yeah. Um, and again, you're, you're, you've got the experience from the trading side of things. Do you think some of these concerns around der- derivatives, the size of derivatives, that these are these are warranted? Or is this sort of a, a black swan that's just waiting to, to appear that could be destabilizing? What are your thoughts on that?
2: You know, I'd really like to sit on a big derivatives desk for a couple of days and watch what's going on right now. Because again, you know, in his particular company, it's unprecedented it daily volume that flows through. And, and I pay a lot of attention every day to what's most actively traded in the options world. And so many, I mean, it's rare the day where Tesla isn't a factor by three of the next company in terms of how many options are trading. And so that's one part of the other part of it is like, how many people now are trading these short term dated ass uh, options, you know, weeklies basically dominate The volume every single day across individual equity. So I, I'm just like, I'm blown away about how large these volumes are and how anyone is possibly making money trading in that way because it's just really a recipe to lose your money pretty quickly and anything i've ever seen and i don't know i i don't know if there's big hedge funds now that have developed strategies and they're implementing them and so they're behind this volume because it almost seems too large for the retail investor despite you know the the new interest in the new platforms and the robins of the world these are a million calls a day are going through tesla where how where is that coming from i'm not sure I'd love to know the answer if anyone has thoughts.
1: Yeah, because you mentioned before sort of, you know, the, the decimalization ended up being good for retail, but of course that destroyed margins, right? So then right, again, right. having more more creative ways to bring people to the poker table, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so so, I, and I'm, I am blown away by the zero DT type options activity that's going on, and I'm with you. It just seems odd to think that's pure retail. Do, do you think that creates another kind of odd dynamic in markets where, yeah, you know, arguably, derivatives are, derivatives are not supposed to drive the underlying asset. But uh, I've made this point before. I think more and more, the underlying right. asset is being driven by the derivations of it, by the birds of it.
2: Yeah, it's definitely a tail and dog story that's changed a lot in, in the last three years. And I, you know, I'm not close enough to the bigger derivative flow these days to have a real sense of who or what is driving that. But it's a new dynamic. It's definitely affecting stock prices you definitely need to be aware when you're in a name what's going on in the derivative book underneath it in a given day and it it, it happens a lot too like i'll have a, a portfolio manager say hey what's going on in xyz today what do you, why do you think that's up 5% uh, and i'll there's nothing on the tape and then i'll go and i'll say okay well there's a 20,000 option print for you know a call expiring in 2 weeks and that's it it's a thin name the, the broker had to get those deltas back in and that's what moved the name. And it's really kind of, again, the tail wagging the dog, but that it, it doesn't really matter. It's It can drive cro- co- uh, prices of stocks and it is. In fact, many days, maybe the most important factor is what's going on in the derivative book in any given name. Yeah, absolutely. It's already happening. It's one of the reasons why Robinhood and Coinbase are struggling right now. The margins are are really big in crypto, especially, right? For these brokers for Coinbase. It's another thing that um Chano's pointed out to me is how much these guys are being clipped on a round trip, you know, in and out basic crypto trade. It's it's like eight to ten percent. It's a lot. And again, you just the math doesn't work. The more you trade, the you're not gonna be that good and you're just paying too much and and for the transaction. So yeah, I expect all that it's the same cycle we've seen before. Unfortunately I've never believed this time is different. It's not going to be different. I think we're, you know, in 2001, like we were post-2000 right now. And so two, three, and four were not that great for the retail guy. And then they all went away for six years. And I hope that's not the experience. Um, but unfortunately, there's been such emphasis on both, you know, on the three things, zero-dated or short-term-dated options, crypto, and you know, sort of the meme stock game, which has just been such a destroyer for ninety nine percent ninety eight percent of the people that got in that just chased this stuff at exactly the wrong time, it's sort of the opposite of the traditional stock chart if we, If you plotted a, a volume and it always corresponds to lows and names and it, and in the meme stock, it corresponds to the opposite, it corresponds to the highs and names, and that's the schmoes buying from the pros at the exact wrong time, and it there's there's so many people buried in these names, and I you know I feel bad for them, and I feel bad to watch these communities develop that are cult like that are just not founded in any realistic belief. It's sad, and it's going to ruin at least part of a generation for a while to come.
1: I think the media is also, in fairness, partially to to blame. For yes, that, right? it's like yes. Yeah, I keep going back to that point. The GameStop spike happened a week, be- a week or two before emerging markets peaked. a right. week or two before small cash start going sideways last year it's right. when the bear market right. really started. Right. And right. that was when the media kept on saying every single day the rise right. of the retail trader.
2: Yeah, it also co-spotted, if you, if you look at my pinned tweet, it's a it's a, co- a comment about ARC funds at the time where I was deeply concerned that the AUM doubled in two and a half months, right, as the exact moment that the meme stock thing went down and so all these things sort of happened exactly the same time and and if you've been in the game long enough you can never pick the top you can never you know you don't you got to be really careful shorting runaway stuff but you also know that yeah the end is nigh because this stuff just is unsustainable and these parabolic type things on lack of fundamentals just they just don't last they won't last and they'll trap people
1: Maybe for the remaining few minutes here, Tom, again, everybody, you know, this year, feel free to follow Tom on Twitter because you've been in this, in the, in the institutional trading side for a while. And I'll always have somebody sending me a DM saying, you know, I get involved right. in the business. What do I do? Listen, I'm of the mindset that this entire industry is going to shit. And I'm very upfront right. with saying that because, yeah. <laughs> honestly, right? Because, you know, you've got uh, uh, algorithms replacing humans. You've got, right. you know, I'm trying to create something different, which means I have to, you know create something that just has a very different turn stream, so I'm never going to compete against Vanguard you know right so it the, the industry is just brutal you know from a go forward right. perspective but for right. those that want to get involved right what, what do you think are some of the some of the interesting areas that should see some signs of growth
2: well, I mean there's still the margins are still there in derivatives in you know in aesthetic areas of credit. I think it's really been hard in equities only to show that you can deliver alpha as an active manager, the the numbers don't, don't speak too well. And I'm saying that as someone who's been on that side of it, you know, great managers have great long-term track records. They don't do it every year, but they do it well over, over a long period of time. And the most important qualities are a intellectual curiosity and B work ethic. And, you know, I've always been a believer. If you, if you give me a kid with those two aspects, they're hungry. They want to learn and they want to work hard you'll find a way to add value and you find a way to do well in our business you just you will succeed over time it's hard to get in the door but if you get in the door and start to demonstrate those two things every day you're you're going to do really well
1: yeah you need to be you don't need to have that mindset especially with a shrinking pie i think is kind of the point right it's it's
2: yeah no i mean and you know look if you've been in long enough there were guys in the business who did really well, and you know what they're great at taking someone to a baseball game or whatever, right? Those days are all over. You know, you look at, say, equity salesmen. They're you know they're basically concierges right now. They they shuttle management around to meetings and to conferences. You know, they're not calling up in the morning. Sort of the morning that whole morning call thing that I grew up with in the business is over. I might get a call a day or a call every few days. That part of the business people have realized they just can't deliver anything of value on a daily basis. And I think it's harder for Wall Street research to deliver anything of value that, you know, people want to highly pay for. It's just gotten too homogenized, too risk averse in a way and you know, it's sort of managing corporate relationships and exposure to those relationships and that's more about that than what's your analysis behind, you know, your rating or your price target.
1: Yeah, and I think, I think that's spot on. Again, everybody, this will be an edited podcast under that Lead Lag Live fan. Your banner, thank everybody, for joining. Thank you, Tom, for joining us uh, for the hour, and everybody, enjoy the rest of
3: your day. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.